is and how that should mark us as Christians, being very thankful. And then listening to, um, to Ryan last night and uh, how he was so thankful uh, that the Lord brought Clint into his life and the, those mentoring sessions and, and all of this. And it's got me thinking as, as well that, yeah, I think that uh, probably all of us pastors here at Calvary Grace would be very thankful to uh, Clint in, in many ways. He wouldn't want me probably to say it, but the Lord has used him greatly in our lives. And, and even myself, you know, well, I'm going into my 12th year here as a pastor, um, and I can think back to, you know, almost 12 years ago and a, a providential meeting with Clint over Twitter and then uh, a coffee shop meeting in Canmore, and we were looking at going back to England, and he persuaded me to, to stay here and has used him greatly in my life. So I'm thankful uh, to, to Clint, and um, I'm also thankful for, for Clint because he stepped in for me uh, this morning and did the session when I was supposed to be speaking, second session uh, this morning, because my, I got up this today and, and my uh, sermon had, was completely gone off my computer. My computer had crashed and it was just gone. I couldn't get it back at all. And uh, so I think the Lord thought it was a terrible sermon. And so he said, I'm getting rid of this thing. There's no way it's coming back. Um, and then I heard that, Ryan, you pulled out an illustration of a family member who's all prepared. And I kind of quite like to be prepared. And, and so the Lord has really kind of brought me to my knees. And, and so as I started to then rewrite the sermon from scratch, and I, I do preach from a full manuscript, so it takes a little bit of time, and I'm not a good typer, typist, um, I began to be thankful then for for other men who have heard teach this passage that I'm going to teach. And, and so that you, you, you kind of imbibe the way they've taught you, even the structure of it, and maybe use even some of their phrases and interpretation even without thinking about it. Um, I'm grateful for a friend, uh, Pastor Dave Doran, who I've heard t- uh, preach this very well. I was impacted by it. I'm grateful again to Clint because I started thinking about in my early days here at Calvary Grace, Colossians was an early thing. And then I, I looked at my uh, notes, and I've still got pieces of paper when our, our note notices was one little piece of paper when we were at the Alexandra Center, and my notes on the back of, of, uh, of, of the Colossians series that we were going through. So I was reading through these and taking down bits and pieces. Of, but the, there wasn't a... I, I missed the sermon on Colossians 4, which was the one I'm going to do today. But, <laughs> but, um, so, but I have got other stuff that I've put in there, and... Um, I'm sure I've quoted Clint over the years and not credited him. So I'm crediting all these guys now because there's nothing new under the sun and they've all helped me. Um, so the, uh, the title is uh, Being a Witness in the Public Square. The text is uh, Colossians 4. Colossians 4 and just two verses, verses 5 and 6. I'll read them, pray very briefly, and then we'll begin. Colossians 4. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Also, Father, as we come to you now, um, in all of our weakness and need, uh, we are so grateful for you, a God of grace and mercy and kindness. Uh, Thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and salvation in Him. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, who even indwells believers now. And and I pray that you would, uh, by the Spirit, bring understanding of this text here and uh, apply it to our hearts, that uh, we may be filled with wisdom 
uh, and the knowledge of Christ, and we be, be helped in our own witness in the public square. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as already has been said, I think, over uh, this conference, though I missed the sessions this morning, but certainly last night, as the culture gets increasingly hostile towards Christianity and Christians, we've got to think carefully about how to be witnesses in the public square, how to be witnesses out, out there to the outside world. Uh, that is, how do we effectively proclaim Jesus Christ and engage with those who are not Christians in our various spheres of life, to be a faithful witness in a, in a hostile world. And I, I think the letter to the Colossians can be very instructive for us here, uh, because it was written to the early church in a, a pre-Christian pagan world, okay? P, a pre-Christian pagan world. And I would argue we are now in an increasingly post-Christian but pagan world, increasingly pagan. And, and, and so, so Paul is concerned about this even in the letter. He, he says in chapter 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. He warns against this humanistic, pagan worldview. And that's what you get when you remove God from the center. You get a humanistic, pagan worldview built on the architecture of the world and not according to Christ. That's increasingly so for us today, as we can see it in all areas of life. And it's important to note, I think, as we begin, and as others have, have noted, um, that our text in chapter 4 is actually uh, the fifth of five sections on practical Christianity in the letter to the Colossians. So, so the letter begins in chapters 1 and 2, uh, presenting the supremacy of Christ the supremacy of Christ and, and the glorious gospel of Christ and how God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that the Christian who was once dead in sin has been made alive and how Christ has forgiven trespasses and the legal demands of unforgiven sin by nailing them to the cross. We see that in chapter 2. So that's chapters 1 and 2. That is what God has done to save sinners. And that's the foundation then for Christian living. And so then you have chapters 3 and 4. They give instruction on, on what that looks like. And, and so then we have these five sections. And the first section is, is the Christian's relationship to Christ. We see that in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. If then you are in Christ, okay, you're a Christian, you've got to set your mind on Him and things above, so now put off sin and put on Christ. Christian's relationship to Christ in practical Christianity, section one. Second, there is the Christian's relationship to other believers in verses 9 to 17 of chapter 3, and how love binds us together in unity. And third section, there is the Christian's relationship to the family, and we see that in verses 18 to 21. Husbands and wives, parents and children. This order in the home for the sake of harmony. And the fourth section is then the Christian's relationship to the workplace in chapter 3, verses 22 to the beginning of chapter 4. And how the slave 
master or employee-employer dynamic, what that looks like for a Christian who works to please God above all else and yet can work with excellence for their employee. And then we have this fifth section on how the Christian relates to unbelievers, to outsiders, as Paul puts it. At the beginning of chapter 4 of Colossians, Paul writes about speaking to God about men. That is, praying for God to open a door for the Word to go through. And then, in our texts that we're looking at, he turns to speak about speaking to men about God. Speaking to men about God. So how we are to witness. And this is what we're going to focus on now. And the reason that witnessing to unbelievers is at the end of these five sections of practical instruction is that without the foundation of faithful Christian life in these other four areas, your witness to unbelievers is going to lack a ring of truth to it. It's going to lack an integrity. It's going to lack power. So what is Paul's instruction for effective witness then in the public square? Well, it involves two things, very simply. It involves your walk and your talk. Your walk and your talk, your conduct and your communication. So we're just going to look at it in two sections. First, the walk. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. The Christian walk is the pattern of your life, your behavior. And it's a different kind of walk. So you know how people have different kinds of walks, right? A cowboy walks like he's just got off a horse. So you see Clint walking down the middle here. He looks like he's parked that horse outside and he's got off it and he's got a little bit of the thing going on. I don't walk quite like that. A dancer maybe walks slightly differently. You see a dancer, they walk with this poise and elegance and so on. People have different kinds of walks. And a Christian has a certain type of walk, a certain type of lifestyle, behavior, and it's not like the world. So Paul can say in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, that you were dead in the sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. So there was a, there's a walking that goes on when you're dead in your sins that follows the course of the world. But then he says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, but now you've received Christ, walk in him. Different walk. And the Christian is called to walk wisely. Walk in wisdom, it says. Now, wisdom's a big thing for Paul in this letter. And it's a problem for the false teachers uh, who he describes in, in, in chapter 2, verse 23, is, a, is what they teach as an appearance of wisdom, he says. But no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so it keeps people away from true wisdom. And therefore, Paul prays, doesn't he, at the beginning of, uh, of this letter, that the Colossians would be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In verse 9 of chapter 1. And, and that wisdom would even control their teaching. Uh, verse 28 of, of, of chapter 1. Teaching everyone, he says, in wisdom. Wisdom's that controlling factor. And wisdom isn't related to intellect or intelligence. Okay? You could, you, just because you, you're intellectual, you're really bright in here, it doesn't mean to say that you're necessarily uh, wise. And, and you know, con consequently, just because you're not very intelligent doesn't mean you can't be wise. So that should be encouragement for a lot of you in here. <laughs> but it's true. 
isn't it? Just because you have got intellect and intelligence doesn't mean you're wise. There are, very, there are many intellectual people today who can't tell you what a man or a woman is, right? They're, they're governing countries. Now, this wisdom begins, as the Proverbs tells us, with the fear of the Lord. And then there's, and then there's this whole book of proverbial wisdom of, of how to live under that banner, to live well in light of God's design. That's rubber meets the road Christianity. And yet this proverbial wisdom finds its embodiment in the proverbial man, Jesus Christ. So Paul tells us in chapter 2 of Colossians, this Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you want to know what it looks like to walk wisely, look at Jesus Christ and study him. And then the context of this wise walk is towards outsiders. So walk in wisdom towards outsiders. So, friends, this is not a vague command to be wise. Just go out there, guys, and just be wise, like a general ad admonition. It's wise conduct in relation to unbelievers. That's what he's talking about here, towards outsiders, which means there's an in and an out. There is a dividing line that we need to recognize if we will walk wisely and witness well. And as we think about evangelism, here is where many Christians and churches maybe get a little bit uncomfortable. Perhaps we've imbibed this too, a philosophy of thought that seeks to be sensitive by erasing the boundary between the church and the world. The thought says we need to minimize that gap because if we can't win them to us, we can't win them to Christ. So treat them like they belong when actually they don't belong. They are outsiders. And your public witness will go wrong from the start if you don't get this category of thought right in your head. They are dead in sin unable to respond to divine things. Only the work of the Holy Spirit can bring them to new life in Christ and create faith. If you don't have that understanding behind your witness, then your witness is going to rely on the power of man and not the power of God. And many growth church strategies say, if you treat non-Christians in a non-inclusive way, you're not going to reach them. And Paul's church growth strategy says, walk in wisdom by treating them like outsiders. Now, he doesn't mean, and don't get me wrong, he doesn't mean, let's love one another and be really rude to outsiders. That's not what he's saying, of course. He's saying, don't remove that barrier between the in and the out. It's one of the reasons we'll, we'll fence the table at the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is for believers, not unbelievers. And of course, this blurring of boundaries fits very well with a culture that is all about blurring distinctions, all in the name of inclusion and fairness, and egalitarian oneness, which denies correct biblical categories and proper discrimination according to the Scriptures. And this idea then also means that our primary evangelism strategy is not to get them to come to church primary. The, the worship service on a Sunday is primarily for exalting God and being edified. 
not saving the lost. Now, hear me correctly again. It's not the lost, that the lost can't come or that we don't welcome them or pray for them. We pray every week in there for those who would be amongst us who would be lost on a, on a Sunday. But what it is is we don't tailor our services to them. And if an unbeliever does come in, in our midst on a Sunday and, a, and they're welcome to, to be with us, he will see how we worship and he will hear the very word of God about Christ. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, maybe the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Nevertheless, if our primary thought when we engage with unbelievers is to, to get them to church, then they might think that coming to church means coming to Christ. And we might be abdicating our responsibility. Paul says, you engage them out there. You. Engage them out there. And you witness to your neighbor and your schoolmate and your workmate. You witness to them. You can then invite them to church. You believer, are, are God's means to engage with outsiders out there. He has brought you into their sphere, them into your sphere. And so you walk wisely, seeking to behave well and have a good re reputation even amongst them, qualification for, a, for an elder, but treating them still as an outsider, not an insider. Not all of us are going to be dragged before kings or courts or have a big public platform. Most of us won't, but we do have a public platform. We're not called to a holy huddle, but to be in the world, yet not of the world. We're to engage in the ordinariness of life, which means every day there are opportunities for us if we had eyes to see. It means that every day for you is purposeful in kingdom work and witnessing in the public square because God ordains opportunities. And this is what he means when he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. We need to be Christian opportunists. Christian opportunists. God is, is going to give you opportunities. You need to make the best of it. Like, you know, some hockey players. They only need a sight of that goal, and they get that shot in. Just a little crack opening, it's in the back of the net. Or that, that sharp businessman who senses an opening in the negotiations and drives the deal home. Now, now this phrase here uh, in the Greek is a, a market term. It means to purchase completely. To purchase completely. So making the best use of the time, purchase completely. Uh, think perhaps um, of the post-Christmas sales in the stores, okay? And I think Women are generally better at this than men. They see a bargain price on a dress, and it's in the bag, purchased completely, before you know it. And they say to you, that was originally $100, down to 50. We saved $50, and you think, no, we spent $50. <laughs> it's true. Opportunist shopping, right? Making the most of the moment. So we need to have a watchfulness and an urgency then about our witness so that when we see that opportunity, we make the best use of the time. And this is why how we walk towards outsiders is important. Our conduct doesn't save, but it does enhance in the, in the situations we're in. Uh, and so perhaps we need to know our culture and what the particular bite points are where the Word of God confronts it. 
maybe it's abortion or gender issues or medical assistance in dying or the nature of the family or governmental overreach. But underneath, the nature of all things hasn't changed. The world is fallen and the devil is real. The man is still sinful, yet made in the image of God. And so, you need to see the thing that, that they are concerned about underneath all of this. You see how it relates to unchanging things. The fear of death, the fear of oppression, a right desire for justice, a quest for identity, desire for happiness and, and hope and, and to have enough, a, a yearning that a guilty conscience is cleansed, and a deep, and deep, deep, deep down, friends, a longing in everyone to be accepted and loved unconditionally and unfailingly. And so what we do is we take people from those bite points and recognizing what those real issues are underneath, and we take them to the biblical explanation in the Word of God and the remedy in the gospel of, of Christ. We take them to the architecture of the world according to Christ. And this takes wise behavior because, just for instance, and very briefly, not everybody out there is an LGBTQ angry activist. Some people are sincerely struggling with sinful, fallen, sinful uh, desires, still sinful, but they're not out there beating the drum for it. And so we might need a different approach to one than, than another. And so we can take absolute principles of Scripture, but we don't apply them absolutely in every situation. And, and, and so we need wisdom. And then that leads us to the second principle for public witness is the talk. We've got the walk and now we've got the talk. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let your speech, your speech. Paul has been talking about his speech as a preacher in, verses, in the earlier verses in chapter 4. And now in verse 6 he's, saying, he's talking about their speech, the church as witnesses. And this speech means not only the gospel, but it does include the gospel. And so Paul assumes then that Christians will not and cannot be silent witnesses. You can't be a silent witness. People must hear the gospel to, to be saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, there might be times for silence, but we must be a speaking people. And this speech should be gracious, it says there. Always be gracious. How often? Always. So there's an obligation, isn't there, upon us to continually watch our speech and seek, um, if you like, a consistency in grace speech. Whether you're engaging with an unbeliever online, with your Facebook debates, or whether you're engaging with an unbelieving family member at Sunday lunch, how many of us always speak graciously towards unbelievers? Well, we descend very quickly to ungracious speech. We get very angry. And I submit to you, friends, that the way, to speak in, the way we speak in private will affect the way we speak in public. 
So seek to be consistent by practicing even the way you speak about others in, in private, then, then it will come out in public. Seek consistency, not only in what you say, but how you say it. It was said of the, the great Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane, um, after he died, it was someone that had heard one of his last sermons, and he said, um, the thing that struck me about uh, Mr. McShane's sermon was, was not so much what he said, but how he said it, how he preached. Now, in the Gospel according to Matthew, Jesus tells us that speech is a heart issue, doesn't he? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew 12. And James tells us that taming the tongue is a mark of maturity. So this is vital stuff we're talking about here. Your speech reveals your spiritual state. And so there's a certain accent with which the Christian should speak. And that's called graciousness. That's your accent. I have an English accent. And so people know I'm from England, unless they mistake me for being Australian, which I dislike, as much as you Canadians dislike being mistaken for Americans. And in response to those who mistake me for being Australian, I throw them off completely and tell them I'm Canadian, <laughs> which I am. I'm a Canadian citizen, right? But my accent, you see, has been a great chance for evangelism. Where are you from? I'm from England. Oh, why are you here? I came to study theology, and now I'm a Christian pastor. Sometimes that's a conversation killer, being a pastor, yeah? On a plane or anywhere. So what I do is then I throw in, but I used to play professional soccer. <laughs> oh, that's interesting, they say. <laughs> why would you go from, from, the world, from that to, to, to the church? And then it's gospel time. But the Christian speaks with that accent of grace to outsiders. And so the Christian doesn't sound like the world. The world's speech is angry. It says, you owe me all the time. That's what it's always saying. It's concerned for its own welfare. A Christian speech is meek. It says, I owe you. It's concerned for the welfare of others. And I'm sure it's grieved all of us as we've looked back at maybe our speech over the last couple of years, that maybe we've sounded a bit too much like the world in what we've put out there on social media or the way we've expressed our opinions on how things are going in the culture and with politics. But graciousness of speech doesn't mean accepting pagan paradigms of speech. That's not gracious. If you call someone a gay Christian, that's not gracious speech because there is no such thing. If they are saved, they are Christian, and they are not defined by a practice of desires that they once indulged in. They are defined by Christ. But to concede the language here is not gracious. When it comes to things like gender-specific pronouns, to call a man she or her, or a woman he or him, is a lie. And although we must remember that all sin is sin, not all sins are the same in gravity. So transgenderism is an egregious sin before God and tramples on His glory, for He is the one who created us in His image, male and female. Affirming 
the opposite of that truth with the pronouns you use for that person also participates in the lie and that person's delusion and spreads confusion. So for the sake of the love of God and the sake of that person and the church, we should not use those pronouns. To use those pronouns would be not gracious speech. Now, we could use wisdom and maybe avoid using pronouns as much as we can. We certainly want to explain our reasons uh, in the kindest way to that person, affirm our care for them. And nevertheless, I, I would urge you, it's not wise to respond to this public peer pressure on the issue, but hold the line of truth for the sake of being holy and being a clear witness. Brothers and sisters, love rejoices with the truth. Now, gracious speech, as we've begun to kind of look at it at different angles, somewhat it, it will be subjective because one man's gracious speech is another man's compromise, is another man's harshness, right? But sometimes that call for gracious speech is a call to be bold. And yet, people may call that speech hateful, unloving, and nowadays even illegal. Yeah, even as we pray for doors to be open, for the word to go through, don't tone down the word. And the devil, who, as Ryan was even saying, wants Christians to be ashamed and fearful, will tempt you to soften. So that what happens is you, you're going to make 25 qualifications of what a dogmatic statement is before ever affirming what it is. By which time you're not really saying anything. And that can happen within the church too, not to digress too much, but you get people that, that, that talking about um, male headship in the, in, in the home and church. Oh, 50, 50 uh, things about what it's not and, and almost apologizing for it before affirming the goodness of it and what it is. Or the same with women and preaching. Oh, but look at all women can do. There's this and this and this and this. Uh, but they, they're not supposed to do the preaching and we're really sorry about that because it's not a really good design, but, you know, it's in the Word. <laughs> but gracious speech is basically based on what pleases God. And so Paul tells us in First Thessalonians that we speak not as to please men, but to please God. So we don't seek to be offensive or unnecessarily confrontational, but our gracious speech is filled with God's wisdom, and so will offend at times. What did the disciples say to Jesus? Do you realize you offended the Pharisees by what you just said? And Jesus says, let them alone. They're blind guides. They aren't saved. And of course, Jesus used tough words. Even though a bruised reed, he wouldn't break. He even says to, to Peter, get behind me, Satan. But then even these are gracious words. He brings a clear rebuke when needed, and it could have been worse. He could have said, get behind me, Peter. Gracious speech will bring offense because there is an offense in the cross that many will stumble on. Uh, many years ago, I was doing a, a big evangelistic event in Liverpool in the UK. Two things Liverpool's famous for. One, the Beatles, two, football club. It was quite daunting. We're in a pub, okay? 
loads of unbelieving, tough-living scousers. That's what the Liverpudlians are called, scousers. And most of them got a few pints in them by this time as well. Pints of beer. <laughs> and at the end, one guy was furious that he had been told he would die and go to hell if he didn't receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And I said, I didn't say that. Jesus did. And that's why we must use the Bible when we speak. We must use God's words. Many people will tell you, don't use the Bible when you, you're doing witness out there because the Bible will offend people. But if you concede on that, you're putting the sword away in the name of non-offense, and you're in trouble because it's our only weapon, friends. It's the sword of the Spirit. We unleash the sword and let the Spirit do the rest because it's a sword that slays, but in slaying it brings life. So gracious speech will attempt to avoid unnecessary offense, but it won't attempt to avoid every confrontation. This talk, this gracious speech, must also be seasoned with salt, it tells us there. Seasoned with salt. In other words, it should be flavorful. It should be appealing. Uh, it should even be persuasive. So think of Acts 28, Paul. He explained and, and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. And he did that from morning till evening. He was a persuader. Acts 17, some of the Jews were persuaded. Not that the power is in human persuasion, but that persuasive, attractive, flavorful speech is a design that God uses to save. Proverbs 16, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. The mark of a wise person. So if you're communicating with your local government over COVID restrictions... Uh, over overreach into church and family life, over the uh, conversion therapy bill that, that were threatened to make biblical teaching on sanctification and sexuality perhaps illegal, or you're conversing with them on why men are allowed to go into women's changing rooms at sports centers. Think, how best can I say that? How best can I say this? How can I put forth absolute biblical principle while not absolute in the way I, I do it? You know the saying, if all you have is a hammer, every problem is a nail. What situation are you in now? Uh, you've got to then keep the big picture in mind. Here is an opportunity to make the best use of the time. It's an opportunity, actually, to speak Christ to them, not just fix the immediate problem before you. So make the best use of that time. Make the most of that opportunity. But if you're on the front foot aggressive, well, I can't do this, that kind of attitude, I doubt your speech will be seasoned with salt. Paul calls the Galatians foolish, but not all of the time. In fact, not much of the time. Jesus calls Herod a fox but only once to our knowledge, and always to make a point. So when possible, we are called to use salty, flavorful words, recognizing the opportunity that we have before us. Now, I give this example 
uh, that coming up now, not because I get this right every time, but because Clint asked me to throw in bits of personal testimony. Uh, and it was a time, I think, when the Lord helped me. And it's timely in, t- in terms of this conference. In 2016, whilst preparing for this winter conference, which we did on the goodness of biblical manhood and womanhood, uh, in the days coming up to the conference, I was charged to speak from Ephesians 5. And so I just tweeted three times from the text, one of which was how a wife uh, could adorn the gospel by gladly submitting to her husband. I went to bed, woke up in the morning, and some English newspapers had picked this up, and the next morning I woke to a torrent of headlines and abuse for my so-called sexist position. My feed was hit over a million times that week, which shows you that the S word is a hot-button word. Now, my policy is not to engage in online debates and arguments, but I did realize there was an opportunity here, Uh, and I had a captive audience of unbelievers. So I waited a day, and I wrote a considered piece. I asked my fellow elders for their input and posted it on my blog and linked it to Twitter for anyone who was interested. In the article, I was able to show the reasons why Paul makes this instruction and how this points to the gospel and how it is everybody's first need and only hope. And so the Lord helped me to see the bigger picture of gospel opportunity and take then the time to to, to use gracious speech and salty words without compromising truth. It was a good and biblical way forward in that moment as a witness in the public square. And more than ever, friends, we might find ourselves facing situations. They They may be thrust on us to be put in front of authorities, whether that's a school board or a, a local government, as you're dealing with these issues that are affecting all areas of life now. So let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. And, and finally, this is so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So how do you think of evangelism? I mean, how does it happen? I, I think, predominantly, we think of evangelism as going out there and going up to people and saying, hey, do you, know, want, to, you want to know who Jesus is? Uh, or have you ever thought about the meaning of life? It might be doing an evangelistic event where someone presents the gospel to unbelievers and others invite, other Christian friends have invited them along, like that Liverpool pub deal I talked about. And there's certainly a place for that. But Paul expects, and get this, and, and also Peter, as you look at 1 Peter 3, that non-Christians will ask Christians to explain themselves, to ask us questions. See, friends, Christians in the early church were so dramatically different from the world that people asked them questions. Not so now. The church is far too dramatically like the world. They're not going to ask a question. You see, there isn't a a word on evangelism technique in the New Testament as far as I can see. In the New Testament, evangelism is a a whole life reality. And and, and so you and I, friends, we are are public witnesses in in the everyday flow of our life through our walk and our talk. Evangelism nowadays is you ask outsiders questions. Evangelism back then in the early church was they will ask you questions. 
so you need to have an answer. You see, that's what he says there. So you'll know how to answer. Peter uses the same thing. You will know how to give an answer for the hope that is in you. And they will ask you questions because you will walk in a certain wise style and you will talk with a certain gracious, salty accent that evokes the questions, why, how? And when they see how you love other Christians, they will say, why, how? And when they see how your home is ordered and how a husband loves his wife and how she submits to him and how children obey their parents, they will say, why? How? And when they see you in the workplace or in your school, submitting to authority, working honestly, even when treated unfairly, they will ask, how how and why? And so, friends... The messier the culture becomes on issues of sexuality, family, rights to life, and so on, the more it becomes a mission moment for us. We can get so negative and downbeat as we see it all spiraling downwards, but God works most in the darkest of times. And as we live out biblical Christianity in our homes, in our workplaces, in our church, etc., as we present a joyful, flourishing counterculture to a culture that cannot continue going the way it's going in anti-wisdom and will implode, they will say, why? How? And you got an open door for the gospel. And remember, friends, in it all, remember you are answering persons. How you answer each person, he says. These are people. These are persons. These are people made in the image of God desperately lost like you once were, like I once was, and so we need to treat them so, and we need to be interested in them as people, not projects. Let them see your compassion, even in the face of hostility at times. And people are individuals, so you need that wisdom to answer a fool according to his folly and then not answer a fool according to his folly. And sometimes you won't throw pearls before swine because time is short and you're limited and there are others who need to hear the gospel. And sometimes, like Jesus, you will love that rich young ruler that God has placed next door and you'll tell him the truth, but you won't run after him when he walks away. And other times you'll go after that lost person and you'll love them into the kingdom. I like the testimony of our friend here, many of us know, Pastor Mes McConnell in Scotland, who, as a young, unbelieving thug on the streets, had mocked young Christian men who brought the gospel to him one night when he was playing pool at the local club and when he was on the streets. And those men who then didn't give up on him and visited him in prison when he had gone to prison for stabbing a man. And how it resulted then in this change of heart. Because you know what he said? He said, they treated me like a person and not a project. It resulted in a change of heart in a man on his knees in the library of the prison reading Matthew Henry and, and a commentary on Romans. Because he'd seen their walk and their talk and how they treated him with care. And it all resulted in this man then eventually converted to Christ, planting churches all across the schemes of Scotland. Peter tells us in connection with this whole thing, to give a reason for the hope that is in you when they ask. A reason for the hope. People need to see your hope, friends. They need to see hope. Paul describes it in chapter 2 of Colossians and verse 5 as a hope laid up in heaven. A hope laid up in heaven. I spoke to inmates in Belfast prison several years ago. The worst of the worst these were. The worst 
One group came in. There were two sessions I did. The first group comes in, unbelievers. I was struck by their eyes. Dark, hopeless, hopeless. The second group came in, Christians. Eyes full of light. Convicted rapists. Pedophiles, these were. Murderers. Some were such, but now they were in Christ. Some of these guys would never, they will never get out from behind those bars in this life, but they were freer than millions outside with no hope in Christ for this life or the next. They were there then in prison to witness to these other prisoners about the hope of Christ who cancelled their record of debt with all its legal demands. That, that record of debt that Satan says, that they must be punished in hell, God. This he set aside, Jesus Christ did, nailing it to the cross. And what he did is he disarmed and shamed and triumphed over Satan, whose only weapon against unbelievers is unforgiven sin. What kind of love are we dealing with here? What kind of hope are we dealing with? And so, friends, what we do in it all is you tell people about Jesus. And so you must know Jesus, not just know about him, but know him personally. And when you know him personally, what happens is you walk like him and you talk like him. So Father, thank you for your word to us even this afternoon. I pray that uh, we would be uh, meditating on this passage even as we go from this place, uh, that we would be more faithful witnesses in the public square according to your prescription and that we would see great fruit to the glory of Christ. Amen.